0: just to go back if we may to Matthew 18 I just want to just add one more thing I felt I needed to share it with you and after we have these wonderful verses on prayer and I think you're familiar with the fact that it says if if in verse 19 if two of you agree concerning anything it will be done for them by my father that is in heaven so notice it emphasizes the father-son relationship amen fathers have to answer sons they don't have to answer petitioners when I lived in Bombay we had many very needy beggars would come to the door they were pitiful we would give them food we would give them clothing we didn't have to But when my son needed food or clothing it was a totally different ballgame I had to provide for him on the other hand although I could be a blessing to that beggar I couldn't tell him what to do but my son couldn't enjoy the benefits of sonship without the responsibilities of sonship and here it's it's asking your father that guarantees an answer and it says if two of you agree the word agree is the Greek word symphonia which literally means to make the same sound together it's the same Greek word which comes into our English language in the word symphony when two instruments are tuned to make the same sound they are symphoneering they are making the same sound here they're in symphony so once again can you see here again the power of unity it's not just two people being in the same room or in the same meeting or in the same house there's got to be that total sympathy we would probably use the word empathy these days but it's a similar sort of word if God can find two people that will be in symphony and, will, and know how to pray to their father he says you can have anything you ask now what could be more simple than that if we were to fulfill that scripture just think and I guess that's where Eileen and I looking back over these decades of being together because we've pioneered together we've always done everything together and we've, we've warred, we've prayed, we've fought together and, and, but two has been enough And we'll, however many you are in your situation The biblical minimum quorum is two. It's nice to be more, but it's not necessary. Hello? Now the other thing I want to point out is immediately, Peter is introduced as asking, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. That works out, if you work it out, at 490 times a day. Now just imagine me, some of you house housewives you've just carefully cleaned and polished the kitchen tiles and it's looking spotless and your husband walks in from the yard to wash his hands with dirty boots on and says oh dear I'm so sorry hey, that man but you decide to forgive him <laughs> but supposing he did it every three minutes during the day <laughs> and, and just said sorry because that's what Jesus is saying here he said if he, does it, if he does it every three minutes and says he's sorry you ought to forgive him that's, that's, can you see what he's asking of us here then we go on into the story of the, of the ruler who's owed money now let, you see the point of that story which is in Matthew 18 from whatever it is verse 21 isn't it yes through to the end of that chapter the point of this story is in the monetary value of what's being asked to be forgiven. The first servant owes the master 10,000 talents. Well, we told you what a talent was. A talent is 66 pounds of gold. So we're talking here about something like 27 metric tons of gold is what he owed him. In present-day value, that comes to a little more than 3 billion US dollars. Now, I want you to see that because that's how God values. It's interesting that Mohan and that um, Rusty should emphasize cost and value because my first word to you is, is that we've got to come to value our salvation for what it really is worth. So God tries to give us some sense of how we should value our salvation by putting this kind of monetary value on he it. Said, he said, what it cost me... To pay for your sins is like three billion US dollars in value because many many Christians have a hundred dollar sense of forgiveness and as a result they live carelessly because they have no comprehension of how much God's forgiven them and what God's brought them from and what he's brought them into see little babies if they happen to be born of very 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 rich parents they have no appreciation of their inheritance until they grow to maturity. Amen? And Many of us need to grow to maturity and one of the things we need to grow to maturity is is the value of what God has done for us in Christ. It's three billion dollars worth of forgiveness. Amen? And when you comprehend that, then your attitude to offences against you takes on a different colour altogether. It pales into insignificance when you understand what God's forgiven you. And once again, this servant goes out, having been forgiven $3 billion of debt, and he finds a a servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii was a Roman coin which was used to pay a skilled workman for one day's wages. So in present-day U.S. terms, a skilled workman can easily earn $150 a day. Amen? Amen. So I want you to think of this. You see, it's 100 100 days labour. So we're talking about something like, say, 15,000 US dollars. It's not a small amount. And this is the point of this story, which many, many Christians miss. Because let's imagine, I'm going to Lubbock for the weekend, and I get there, and I'm with dear brother, precious Jackie White there, and I say, Jackie, I forgot to bring any cash with me. Could you just lend me $20 to buy some food on the way home he said sure and i said i'll send it back to you but i forget to do it what's he going to do he's going to forgive me that's not a problem because it's twenty dollars hello yeah. but supposing i say to jackie jackie look i'm in a bit of a difficult situation because i'm just closing on a house And I have a temporary cash flow problem and I need $15,000 and I'll be able to pay it back within a month when I get released from some CDs that I have. He says, sure Alan, I can do that, that's no problem. Imagine I don't pay that back. (laughs) Hello, can you hear? (laughs) Now that's the point of this story because it's easy to forget $20 but it's not easy to forget $15,000. He said that guy's a man of God and three months have gone by he's never sent me the money and it's eating away inside him because $15,000 is a lot of money to lose. Now here's the point of the story because it's very easy to forgive people their $10 and $20 offences but what Jesus is saying look you've been forgiven $3 billion worth of sin you better learn to forgive the $15,000 debts like some ladies who've been abused by their fathers the one person that should have given them security is the one that violated them that's a terrible offence it's a $15,000 or even worse offence but you've got to forgive those as well you're in this church situation and there was a painful split and there was, you were treated horribly and you're still carrying the offence here because it was, it was a very painful situation And and you can't get rid of it because you won't forgive at that level of offence. Can you hear what I'm saying? And when we learn, because of what we've already been forgiven, that 15,000, 50,000, 100,000, 1 million dollar offences are still minuscule compared with what we've been forgiven, and we start to forgive at that level, then a mighty release comes. And there are many people, probably in this meeting, certainly in the churches that you lead, where they're still carrying these big offences. Parents who treated them badly, no doubt about it, but they haven't been able to forgive them. And as I said in the earlier session, if you don't freely forgive, and if you hold that offence against them, there's something happens in the legality of the righteousness of God which doesn't release him to bring them salvation and forgiveness until you agree with God about it. So you hold them prisoner to their offence, and you hold yourself a prisoner in the unforgiveness in your own heart. and We both end up as prisoners. And if only we can get hold of this, and if this could become the life flow of our churches, I'd tell you something incredible would happen in the spirit realm. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Amen. Let's move on. Now, I want to just cover a few more things, and I want to get on to my major theme for this morning. On page 24, you'll notice... The tabernacle, a continual place of 24-hour prayer and worship. It, was the, it went on continually. And I have to confess to you that I've always thought people that prayed through the night were nuts. I couldn't see why on earth can't you just have a good night's sleep and pray in the daytime like any civilized human being. And I've never been one for, I mean I've tried it a few times, it was too tough so I didn't do it. But I have become absolutely convinced of the power of a constant prayer covering to a city or to a situation. In fact, the way I learned this was really from some converted witches. Because we know one of the places here in San Antonio that is a stronghold of demonic witchcraft and activity. We would go there, we would cleanse the thing. And those uh, um, witches and... uh, uh, What's the word I want? What was that? Yeah, the, the, the New Ages, all those sort of people, the, the Satanists, that's what I wanted. They would go back in the dead of night and undo what we had done in the light of day. I thought, why do these wretched people always do it at night? <laughs> I've got to get up and then we had to go there at night to confront them at night so they couldn't do it anymore and I really resented losing my sleep over this. <laughs> and then I was talking to these converted witches I said why do, you, why do witches and warlocks and, and people of Satan why do they always do things in the dead of night? And they said oh that's easy because Christians are always asleep. And yet the spiritual atmosphere is a thousand times better and we get things done in the spirit realm at night a hundred times easier than in a day when no Christians are praying. I thought, that's it. Now, in the natural, you can't just put a guard on a city during the day and hope the enemy stays asleep all night because that's the time he's going to attack. And so I've become convinced, and I'm just talking about the last few months, that's all, that 24-hour prayer is not just uh, you know, an in thing. It's actually vital... In our spiritual strategy, and in, already in this city of San Antonio, when we started this 24-hour prayer watch, you can feel the change already. There isn't an hour when this city is unguarded. There's not an hour when enemy can come because everybody is asleep. And this is a, this is a feature of David's tabernacle, which David obviously clearly understood in those days, and it will be a feature of the tabernacle that we will raise up in this place. And we're still having to work out the practicalities of how this can be done. But I'm convinced there's a tremendous power released when this happens. That means worship and prayer and praise will go on 24 hours through the day and night. Now we've got every hour covered many times over in the city of San Antonio. We just ask people to sign up for three months and then to renew their covenant every three months. And we've found that there's been a tremendous response. Now, people pray at home, they don't come to any particular building, but I'm still feeling there's an even greater power in assembling in a particular place. We've not done this practically yet. They are doing this in Kansas City, for example. They are doing it in other places around the world. They certainly do it in, uh, in Seoul, South Korea. That's been the power of Prayer Mountain, is that it just goes on all the time. I cannot think of a church in Seoul that I've ever visited and I visited quite a few that does not have at least one all-night prayer meeting every week and that's why that city is changing that's why now forty percent of the city is converted that's why in a city of what was eight million Buddhists, there are now almost 3.3 million Christian believers and this has happened in my lifetime I've seen this happen in my lifetime so we're going to see the same things here Amen. So you better say, well, Lord, if you give me grace, I will do it. Let's move on. I want to talk about the tabernacle as a place of ruling and warfare. Now, you may not see David's tabernacle mentioned many times in Scripture, but what you do see is Mount Zion. Amen? Or just Zion. Every time you see Zion, remember that's the place where David's tabernacle is. And we're told again and again that the rule of God, where does it go out from? From Zion. The strong scepter of God's rule goes out from Zion. Psalm 110. God stretches forth his rule from Zion and says, rule in the midst of your enemies. I, could, I mean, there were so many scriptures, I ended up by not putting any of them down. Did you just go through your, your Old Testament and even, of course, in the New Testament? and see how many times Zion is referred to. In uh, in Isaiah 16, verse 5, which I did read the other day, we're told there, let me just go back to that for a moment, and let's just pick up something. Isaiah chapter 16. I guess when I say Isaiah, I'll be really American. I want you to come... Let's go to the second half of of verse 4, where it gives us certain things here. It says, the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now, can you see all these issues of justice and righteousness? We are being told that the power to enforce these upon our society is going to be through the activity of of David's tabernacle. That's where the throne is. That's where the power goes forth, which will change our judiciary, for example. I mean, to be very honest with you, as I began to read the American Constitution, and I spent several days... In Pennsylvania, I went to the beginnings, officially, of the United States there and to the Assembly there. I went to the Federal Court there. Then I spent several days in Washington. It's was amazing how God opened doors for us in the most remarkable way. And we spent some time just looking at, the, at the, the foundations governmentally of this nation. And I have to say this, the thing that appalled me was the way the Supreme Court functioned. I couldn't believe it was legally the way it seemed to be. And I was privileged enough with Eileen to have lunch with a group of people that work full time in the Supreme Court. So I said, look, let me just get this straight. And I, I said, look, here we have you know, the House of Representatives, we have the Senate, and they pass a particular piece of legislation. Then nine judges of the Supreme Court can then strike it down if they feel it's not according to the Constitution. They said, that's absolutely right. I said, now, do they have to prove this or is it just their opinion? It's simply their, their, um, what's the word they use? It's simply their expert opinion. And I said, am I right in saying that it is a simple majority of five to four They can overrule the the elected representatives of 250 million people. He said, that's absolutely right. So I said, one man who's got a chip on his shoulder can stop 250 million people experiencing democracy. He said, that's right, that's the way it is. I'm appalled about this. I don't know whether you are. And the biggest problem in Texas is our Supreme Court. Come on. I don't know about your particular state if you're not from Texas but beloved why do we just sit here and let this go on yeah. let's change it yeah. and I'm not talking about primarily political activation although obviously to, uh, through the legitimate channels that may be necessary but in the, in the tabernacle of David we can exercise a rule that brings transformation we can, we can execute we're told here righteousness righteousness and justice and judgment. And something's got to happen to bring back the freedom for the righteousness of God to be established without restriction in our society. There's a big battle going on right now. You may have heard of it or read about it starting today. The debate is starting today which is going to further restrict freedom of speech so you can't speak against anything which is we will regard obscene or offensive. The, 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 the lobbies of these small activist groups are, are gaining tremendous ground through the courts. And I'm not suggesting that we just raise money and fight them in the courts, although that, I'm sure, will be part of it. But we have a, a weapon in the heavenlies that we're simply not using. And one dimension of David's tabernacle has got to be to exercise the rule and justice of God so as to transform the rule and justice of our society. And if we shrink from that, then we are irresponsible citizens of this nation. We have the power of the vote, which we we must use, but we also have the power of prayer, which is much, much more powerful. I first went to India in the beginning of 1963, almost 40 years ago and I have, uh, the Indian Constitution says this, it says every Indian, it says India is a secular state, it's not a Hindu state, it's not a Muslim state, it's not a Christian state, India is a secular state, but this is what it says in the Constitution, every Indian has the right to practice and to propagate his religion so the right of evangelism in all circumstances is written in the Constitution now that has been of great offence to the Hindu majority, and in those 40 years that I've been closely connected with India, there have been at least three occasions when they brought about legislation to stop that basic right of evangelization, have it struck out of the constitution. They even got as far as passing laws in the state of Orissa, where many pastors went to jail rather than obey that new law. It went to the Supreme Court, which, unlike America, is not politically loaded. They are honest judges who seek to bring an objective judgment. And they struck down the legislation because it was against the Constitution. The pastors were free, and the, con- the freedom to continue to evangelize was granted to them. In a recent, uh, So they realized, well, we're going to have to change the Constitution. So in the recent government in India, I've seen it happen three times now, they brought legislation to the point of becoming law when something has happened because a 1% Christian minority know how to pray. One example which was very striking was in 1976 when India had a president called Lal Bahadur Shastri was his name. At that time India was extremely friendly with Russia. And they had a... a, a, a a government which uh, was a coalition government but it was ruled over the largest party was the, the BJP which is a militant Hindu party they were ruling the nation at that time and they'd got this legislation which was which was cynically called the freedom of religion bill and in this bill without mentioning the name christian they said that no one could be persuaded to change their religion by any threat of punishment or by any promise of blessing in the life to come now how can you preach the gospel without violating that law you posi- you can't it was passed by the houses the two houses the the Lok and the upper house passed that law it was just waiting to be signed by the president he went on a state visit to russia and while he was there because there's a 1% minority who knew how to pray. They got no power in the voting box, but they'd got power in the heavenlies. They knew how to sit in David's tabernacle and declare justice and righteousness in their nation. So when Lal Bahadur Shastri went on a visit to, to Russia, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Never signed the paper. This produced a political crisis which caused the downfall of the government. And that, that legislation was never completed and even to this day it's never been able to be completed because every time they try, the Christians pray and the government is dissolved. Amen. Now it frustrates me that in the United States of America with our vast Christian majority, we're not seeing a lot more victories in this realm. I told you in the other session what we did about preaching Jesus in our public schools. It was a prayer victory. It was not a political victory. And if we could just get some faith and passion about these things, we would see transformation. And I hope you are as ticked off as I am inside about the devil strutting around this nation as if he owns the place, when Jesus Christ has died and risen again that he might be Lord.) <laughs> <coughs> I can feel the lion inside <laughs> me. Amen I don't know quite how to say these things in a short time, but um, there is a tape or tapes, where I deal with this tremendous word cathizo. don't you know what I'm talking about? And if you've never heard me teach on that, I recommend that you get that tape because I I just began to study why Jesus told his disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high, and I made a a discovery which changed me and has changed a lot of other people. And and what we are called to is we are called to a place where we learn because that's what this word tarry, the Greek word is the word kathidza, that's what it really means, it's a horrible English translation, because if you say to people, wait here until the officer can see you, you you sit in a kind of passivity, that's not what Jesus is saying, he's saying what you've got to do is you've got to learn to sit comfortably on a throne, as if you own the thing, you know what I mean? This is my, in my house, and many homes that you are familiar with, there's dad's chair it's dad's chair you know that's his chair nobody would dare sit on it when dad's in the house <laughs> and, and he sits there and, and you know and he's sort of you know this is my chair oh i'm glad to be home in my chair and, and we sit there comfortably with a right to sit there now that's the idea behind his word we sit comfortably upon the very throne of god for the purposes of exercising right and power and government now Jesus said don't go anywhere until this has become your lifestyle and when that revelation comes to us that that this is you see this is this 3 billion dollar salvation I keep talking to you about God's taken us from nothingness to throne life and yet we're still humanly nothing but in him that's who we are and that's where we are and if we can grasp this There's no point in having prayer meetings and shouting meetings if we do not pray out of the authority which we know. Amen? Amen. I mean, even in our secular court authority, when a police officer comes with his full uniform and raises up his hand, everybody stops. Why? Not because of the noise he makes, but because of the authority of his uniform. Amen? Amen? If he were to come in ordinary clothes and no one knew he was a policeman and raised his hand he'd get run over by the first truck. That's right. Amen? Amen. So when we start to have prayer meetings which are filled with the knowledge of our authority then we'll see things change tremendously. We spend too much time uh, so, so many songs make me sick because they're pleading for things we've got. I think, oh, for goodness sake, read your Bible and stop singing that rubbish. <laughs> Comfort me, come to me, Lord. Uh, come on. Come on, let's get some good songs written. Come on. Amen. Uh, there's that tremendous song we used to sing in Redeemed. Do you remember that, Mark? I can hear the roar of the lion. Do you remember that one? I I love that song, it makes me tingle. Can you hear the lion roaring? Okay, let's move on. Ephesians 1 tells us the power and authority which the risen Christ has in Ephesians 2.6 declares we have already been raised up together and we already are seated together with him. It's not a future event, it's a now event. It's a violation of the Greek to read it any other way. Hello. I I, I heard someone preaching the other day saying, we're longing for the day when Jesus will come into his kingdom. I said, you nut. (laughs) He was preaching on the radio. I thought, dear Lord. But with that sort of theology, you know, no wonder so little happens in that spirit realm. Now, we come to Melchizedek. I'm leaving that deliberately. We're going to do a whole school of the word on that. If you come to Psalm 2, I say here this is a terrifying passage. Don't you agree with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Let's turn to Psalm 2 for a moment. Psalm 2. Come to verse 6. I will declare the decree. This is, of course, the spirit of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus takes this passage and says, look, if that's just David talking, why does he call him Lord? And the scripture cannot be break. He says, look, this, this, is, this is the great David speaking by his spirit through the little David. Amen? I will declare the decree the lord has said to me you are my son today i've begotten you ask of me and i will give you a hundred people out of your city (laughs) ask of me and i will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession you shall break them Or rule them, is another translation, with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. That's talking to the secular rulers of the earth. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. O God, let the federal judges of America hear this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, them's fighting words. (laughs) (laughs) Amen? may God put that spirit. You see, that's the spirit of David's tabernacle. Psalm 110, let's just go there while we're in the Psalms. Let's just read it. This is all written because it was inspired in the tabernacle of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit there and wait because there's nothing we can do about the present situation. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of where? Out of Zion. Rule. In the midst of your enemies. Now, it's too late to do that in heaven after Jesus cu- has come, and it's the end of this present conflict. This has got to be speaking about the present now. Amen? Yes. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and he will not relent, he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now this is the order of Melchizedek. It's a fighting, warring, shooting, demon crushing, devil destroying priesthood. That won't let anything get in the way of bringing forth the glorious kingdom of our God. When I get to the next Melchizedek, you will see that we are called to be an intrinsic part of it he shall judge among the nations he shall fill the place with dead bodies he shall, he shall break kings into pieces is a good translation and he shall drink of the brook by the wayside therefore he shall lift up his head it's, Again, can you feel, can you feel the, the warrior-ness of these things this is David's tabernacle dealing with demonic strongholds putting them down although it's not the subject of this conference it's got to be the passion of our hearts there are times to pray and times to speak what God gives us to say from the throne and there are times to go and do specific acts of occupation that the Lord may indicate for us to go and do I say Mount Mount Searle is a good example of this there are other examples around the world where the principalities have been thrown down and the cities suddenly become so open to the gospel. I went to Dr. David Yonggi Cho's church. church uh, I think the first time was 1981. I think he had a small church then; it was just around 200,000. We went. We went. I only went back less than six months later. It they'd had added 54,000 in less than six months. But I saw why. I, I heard him preach, and you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, but there's nothing fantastic about his preaching. And there's a very limited time. Everything sort of seems to be against it. They've they got to get through seven services on one Sunday because of the people that come. So everything's strictly ordered. There's a little bit of worship. He preaches a little short message. But what's so different is when he gives the invitation. On the Sunday that I was there, a little over 10,000 people gave their lives to Jesus. That happens every Sunday. So I thought, oh, well, they're just raising their hands. There's nothing to it. So we went into the offices and began to... Ex- we were shown the inside of that church, like very few people are privileged. I said, well, let me see the records. They showed me the records. They said, well, last Sunday, I forget the exact figures, but it was something like this. ten thousand three hundred eighty-one people gave their lives to Jesus. I said, what happened to them? They said, well, here's the records. They were in these different house groups. They got it all there. And it was something like 8,000-something people were added to the house groups in the church there. So I said, oh, what happened to the other two? Th- oh, well, they went into other churches. We got a record of everybody. I was told the story of one man who was dragged by his friend to church and they got his name and address. And so the house group started visiting him. He got so fed up with their visits that he decided to move house and go to the other side of town. <laughs> but what he, the mistake he made was to give, give to the post office his new mailing address. So when the house group found he'd moved, they gave the new address to the house group nearest to where he was moved to. <laughs> and when he moved to his new house, they came to help him move the furniture in. <laughs> so this guy said, "Well, I can't win. I better give myself to Jesus." And they said, "That's how they." Got. He said, "That's how I got saved." Now he's transformed and a very, very ardent member of the church. But, but what amazed me was, was the passion for souls that's, that's woven into the fabric of that church. They just are not going to let people go. And Yogi Cho said this many times, I've heard him say it. Several times he says, When I'm in another place, I can pray for three hours, five hours before I preach. He said, But I can never get the same liberty and never get the same results. But when I go to my own home church, he said, I preach under an open heaven because the prayer has broken the demonic pall the demonic cloud that used to hang over our city. He not only our church, every church is growing, and that's true. Every church you go to is thousands. And it's because of the prayer power has done something in the heavenly realm which has absolutely transformed that city. And we're going to do the same thing in our town. How about you? Amen. Amen. Well now what I want to do now is to have a sudden and significant shift but I want to open up the subject which is I believe one of the main things that we are to share during this conference and that's why you've seen on the front cover of your notes you've seen this picture of the power the the cooling towers of a a power station and I want to explain this if you haven't already read it just read along with me. And this happened to me just a little while ago when I was in Austria and in the Balkan countries. And I was there with Franz Lippi, who some of you know, he wasn't able to come this time because he just got back from Uganda. But he had, it was either in uh, um, Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, or it was in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia. I forget which of those two towns it happened. But he had this remarkable vision which he shared with me. And as he was sharing it, it was so amazing because it, it, it just gave a graphic picture to the scriptures that God was giving me to preach on. It sort of completed the picture. He had seen the vision but didn't understand what it meant. I had the scriptures which exactly explained the vision that he just had. As I've said to you, my, ex- my anointing is in the, is in the word. Even if I prophesy, it's always out of scripture. I don't see things so much as the scriptures just come alive to me. So we together, because he always does visions and dreams dreams. So the two together were a perfect combination. And what he basically saw was three three things. He saw, first of all, um, the cooling towers of an atomic power station. And it was throbbing with life and power. And he said the thing that struck him was that the whole of the power station, but particularly the cooling towers, had an incredible, supernatural, brilliant white light that was shining out from them. And he knew this light was was the, the glory of God. And he said there was tremendous power in that power station and there were cables which were flowing from the power station and they were lighting up the whole city and they were lighting up the whole region. And then he heard God just say this to him. He heard the, like the audible voice of God saying, "This is David's tabernacle." And that was the end of vision one. Vision two, which followed immediately, was then a map, including southern Austria, but covering all the Balkan countries, which is which is the area that particular church has got responsibility, and they've been working in all the Balkan countries for. As soon as the door opened, they were there. And they're seeing tremendous things happen. But all over this map, they saw five places where there were locations for these atomic power stations. And they knew that God was telling them that they'd got to raise up a tabernacle of David in each of these places. One was in Graz. One was in uh, Ljubljana. One was in Sarajevo. One was in uh, Dubrovnik and the fifth one I believe was in Maribor. if you know anything about the Balkans you know that these are very important cities there but all over the map there were hundreds of tiny spots of light and there were cables running from the power stations to these spots of light and the character of the light was exactly the same as the light which was glowing around the power stations. It was the same light, it was just a smaller quantity of it. But he said it had the same supernatural brilliance, the same supernatural glory was in these spots of light as he saw in the power stations. And they were connected by cables to the power stations. And then God just spoke again and he said this. He said, these are the houses of peace. That was all didn't make any sense to him but I knew exactly immediately what it was, I knew exactly what it was because of what God had been showing me in the scripture then he had a third uh, that closed, a third vision came and it was the same basic map with the same powerhouses, and with the many many spots of light except it had changed in this respect and that was that many of the or a good number of the tiny spots of white light had changed into significantly larger yellow flames. The size had changed, and the color had changed. It was now a yellow incandescent, more like a candle flame, whereas all round, where that change had not taken place, we still had the brilliant spots of white light. And God said, concerning this third vision, he said, these are bush churches. That was it. I said I know exactly what it means. And I began to teach on it there but I knew also that this wasn't just for the Balkans although it's for the Balkans but this was a pattern that God wants to see happening all over the world because it puts all the component parts in their place. And I saw that David's tabernacle, without the houses of peace, was was incomplete and would not bring in the harvest. Because remember that when James was uh, led by God to quote the prophecy of Amos, the most important thing was that after the tabernacle has been raised, after its ruins have been restored, the primary purpose, according to the word of God, is that the rest of mankind should seek the Lord. So if you like, the the final purpose of David's tabernacle is an incredible supernatural harvesting of souls who are lost men and women in the world. It would also bring great blessing to God's people. And that's what I want to look at for the rest of this morning. And I want just to turn you now to page 26 and... I think I don't need to say any more about David's tabernacle. I want to see now how it fits in with these other two pictures. So I basically described verbally what it says in page 26. So I'd like you now to move on to page 27. What we have to hear from God, I believe, is the locations of these atomic power stations. Because once they're established, and once they're going, and once they are filled with the glory of God, they're going to bring light to a whole city, they're going to bring light to a whole region. And I personally feel, for example, with Texas Revival Network, we have identified nine regional centers where we have the beginnings of an apostolic center with apostolic leadership, And I believe that my primary goal to work with these brothers over the next year or two is to bring forth the full power and revelation of David's tabernacle in each of these places. And then we've got precious brothers in Arkansas and in Georgia who are learning to talk like Texans. (laughs) (laughs) bringing, Bringing dignity and respectability to this needy state. Have you ever been into the Arkansas Mountains and heard people talk there? The Ozark Mountains, you know? Well, I thought Texans had an accent until I went there. When, I, when we went to a restaurant in the um, Ozark Mountains and, and, and I, I ordered from the menu, this precious lady stood with her mouth open. She said, Could you say that again? <laughs> I ain't never heard anybody talk like that, (laughs) (laughs) and and I wanted to sort (laughs) of… She thought I was strange in the way I spoke, (laughs) it's a matter of perspective. Right. right, let's move on. And I want to um, look at this subject, which I'm going to complete by the end of today. I want to look at this. The, what I believe is the heart of the matter is establishing these houses of peace. And I've just given you a quick summary. Luke 14, 4 and Matthew 11:11 through 13. When Jesus was anointed by the Spirit... He became the beginning of the kingdom of God. I've already mentioned to you that he refers to his ministry in the neuter as something. He was the man, if you like, who began to live on earth again for the first time since Adam, a life which was the kingdom of God because he was totally submitted to the Father and he had total authority over all that God had created. He re-established what Adam had lost in terms of government from the moment he was anointed and stepped out into his ministry. Do you understand that? It was the beginning of the kingdom. So, if you run over the kingdoms, like look what Jesus did in those three and a half of years of ministry, and He told us that the least in the kingdom of God is much greater than John the Baptist. He also told us that the kingdom will automatically be attacked violently. The devil does not like happy, clappy, charismatic churches. He doesn't like people having prayer meetings where they just want to enjoy God and be blessed. But what terrifies him is when they start to have kingdom intent. When they decide to go to war and change their society and to get men and women saved, that's when all the alarm bells go off in hell. If you stay having your private charismatic meetings he will leave you alone hoping that you never get the revelation to do something about the world you live in. But the moment you step out into what he regards as his territory then that's a declaration of war as far as he's concerned. And he will attack you. Now there's been many attempts to translate Matthew 11:12, and they usually mess it up. Thank you. They usually mess it up. Because, because, and, and, and I don't like the NIV translation because it, it waters the whole thing down. New American Standard, King James or New King James and many others all keep it pretty well. And you see, there is a, there is a, a contradiction here. It says the kingdom of, of God automatically suffers violence. That's the first experience. If you decide, right, brother, we're going to have a kingdom church, you'll suffer violence. You're going to be attacked. But the only way to deal with the devil is to come back at him twice as hard as he comes at you. There's no other way to fight the spiritual warfare except, right, you want to fight, you want to play hardball, I'll play hardball. And if you haven't got that attitude, then it's better, Jesus said, it's better not to start the war. That's what he said. You better count before you start that you've got the resources to finish. Otherwise, don't start. Because if you try and make peace with the devil, he will not give you peace. He will just give you unconditional surrender. And he'll eat you alive, whether you fight him or not. Hello. So it's better to go down fighting than just be eaten passively. But if you get up and fight, it's surprising what the Lord will do through you. (laughs) Because Satan is basically a bully, and if you punch him back as hard as he hits you and twice as hard, he will quickly withdraw and want to keep his distance from you. So that's why Jesus said, Although the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, nevertheless violent men take it or advance it by force. There's no other way to advance the kingdom except by force. It's got to be, we're on a war footing, folks. The Apostle Paul summarizes his ministry by saying, we had some fantastic meetings. We had some sweet, lovely times with Jesus. Is that what he says? No, he says, no, he said, we fought a good fight. We fought a good fight. Timothy, son, you're taking over the apostleship. Here's the baton. Fight the good fight, son, because there's no other way to be an apostle unless you're a warrior. But if you let the Spirit of God train you, you will punch the devil's lights out every time. God loves to take a little nothing nobody like you and me and flatten the demonic opposition through you because it gives him such glory. And everybody knows it's ridiculous except for the grace of God. Amen? They know where to give the glory. Okay. So Jesus became the first violent man. And his personal life As i pondered this more and more, his personal life, his prayer life, it was like he he not only was the one man beginning of the kingdom, but he, in the beginning, was the one man tabernacle of David. His life was a tabernacle of David. In fact, we're told he tabernacled amongst us. And in that private prayer tent of his own uh, humanity, he waged a war and lived a life and prayed a life with all the glorious dimensions of David's tabernacle in a way that were absolutely glorious. So I want you to see that the moment he came to his anointing, it became the the powerhouse out from which salvation came to men and women. And one of the first things he did was because he was so passionate to extend the power of the kingdom and the power of the tabernacle was that he got these twelve disciples and he hooked them up to the power that he was generating by his own Tabernacle of David life. Does that make sense to you? So these were like light bulbs glowing on the end of the wire that he put into them and they went out into different places and they were healing the sick and they were casting out demons saying hey this is fantastic why? because they were connected to the powerhouse. It was his intercessory life that kept the power flowing in them. And Once he got the twelve moving who were apostles, the first 12 apostles. Then in Luke chapter 10, we come to this next category, the 70. And this is what I want to focus on. The first 12, the, the verbs, by the way, are that he sent them out apostolically. There's two words, I better say this now, there's two words in the Greek language, thank you. There's two words in the Greek language for send. One is pempo. P-E-M-P-O, you write it in English. And that just means to send. The second word is apostello, which also used to mean to send, but in the time of the Greek Empire, particularly during the time of Alexander the Great, apostello took on a more particular meaning. It was used by the emperor and other Kings of that Greek empire, when they were colonizing North Africa, they would send out a military naval expedition to go and conquer a piece of land and bring it into the rule and subjection to the Emperor of Greece. The naval officer who had charge of that expeditionary force, he was called an apostle. And he was apostolically sent by the emperor to go, and he had a definite brief. He was told where to go, where not to go, what his sphere was, but his, his purpose was to conquer and bring that area of land into submission to the rule and government of the king. The group of military and naval people that went with him, they were called an apostolate, a group of people under apostolic leadership. They weren't apostles, but they were in apostolic leadership. He was called an apostle. And so apostello changed in its meaning to mean someone sent in this way with a particular authority, with a very definite purpose. And the purpose was to conquer and bring the rule of the king to an area that was not presently under his rule and authority. So now you can understand when Jesus came, he decided to call those men apostles because that's exactly what they were going to have to do. And the word apostello is used. The other word that's used sometimes is a, is a pretty violent word. It's the word ekbalo, which means to throw violently. The best picture I can think of is, is a baseball picture. You know, when he's, he's going to throw a fastball. He's got this mean look on his face. I'm going to kill you with this if I can. And then, and suddenly he lets fly with this ball. And he can get up tremendous speeds, over 100 miles an hour. Now that exactly describes the Greek verb ekbalo, to throw violently. And Jesus teaches us to pray for the Lord to ekbalo laborers into his harvest field. Violently throw them into the harvest field. Go and get some souls saved or don't come back here. <laughs> The basic punishment in Prayer Mountain for not getting people saved was you went and fasted and prayed for three days. If that didn't work, it was ten days. If you hadn't got your house grip doubled in a year, they fired you. Yongi Cho would send people to Japan with a one-way ticket. <laughs> so I'll pay your airfare, then you're on your own. You better get some people saved, otherwise you're going to die. Then get them to tire, then you can live that's what he did I'm telling you the truth one way ticket just enough money for the first ten days and then you're on your own, you better get yourself enough people saved in ten days to live otherwise you're gonna die, that was a tremendous motivation now let's just close with this because we're running out of time so, so these, let me just say this about these 70 then I will stop <laughs> they were not appointed as apostles but they were apostolically sent that's the difference the 12 were, could go anywhere as the Lord led them the 70 were located in a particular place and they weren't free to go anywhere He sent them to whatever town or city and they were to stay there until he gave them permission to move on. Okay? So they were not apostles, but it only worked because they were under apostolic authority. They were apostolically sent and yet they themselves were not apostles. And I believe that one of the keys to getting our cities transformed is for us to recognise that there is an order in God's government that we've got, to, we've got to accept. And if we will do that, we're going to get the job done. And if we don't do that, we're not going to get the job done. It's really that simple. Let's just stop here and we'll have a break.